to Peace in Their Time, Episode 72, The Northern Expedition. An all-or-nothing campaign to conquer the heart of China had been a dream near and dear to Sun Yat-sen's heart, and his successors shared their mentor's vision. And after years of wrangling, the KMT's southern base had been secured well enough to actually get the dang thing going. The nationalist strategy, though, was challenged by the Soviet advisors and the CPC, with the communists arguing against such a grandiose campaign. It just carried too many risks in their eyes. With tensions rising between them, Chiang Kai-shek began to suspect that he was going to be the target for an abduction by the increasingly hostile leftists. A Chinese gunboat named the Chungshan was commanded by a known communist and anchored itself right off Chang's office on Wampoa Island. The boat seemed ready to depart at any moment, but for March 18th and 19th of 1926, just sat there anchored. Cheng, though, wasn't one for taking chances and was growing increasingly paranoid and had the boat and its crew seized on the 20th. Not stopping once one line had been crossed, he declared martial law in Guangzhou and took control of the city. Having escalated the situation, he now aimed to get rid of Wang Jingwei in the bargain and bring the communists under his authority. Verodin, who was conveniently out of China at that moment, returned a month later to try and make a deal with Chang. The Soviets still felt that the KMT was indispensable to push their policy in China, and so gave Chang most of what he wanted. Several Soviet advisors that Chang had come into conflict with were returned to Russia, communist activities in the KMT were heavily restricted, and Wang Jingwei was temporarily exiled to Europe. He'd be back sooner rather than later, but Chang only wanted him out of the way long enough for the expedition to be launched under his command. Speaking of which, the communists were also finally induced to back the much-postponed offensive. The members of the KMT were also required to re-pledge their commitment to Sun Yat-sen and his political vision, of which Chang was establishing himself as the primary champion. With the Kuomintang bound to him and the communists controlled somewhat, he was finally ready to launch the attack. Their first target would be the remnant of the Zhili clique commanded by Wu Peifu. On July 9th, 1926, the National Revolutionary Army, or again the NRA for short, marched north from their starting positions in southern Hunan province. In all, the NRA consisted of somewhere in the neighborhood of 150,000 men, comprising both regular KMT troops and also contributions from the Guangxi and Yunnan warlord cliques. Over half of this force would be kept in reserve, while 65,000 formed the first invasion army. I would like to say there were dramatic battles from the start, but most of Wu's forces, and definitely all his good ones, were committed far to the north in the campaign against Feng Yuzhang and the Guomenjun. Wu's garrisons melted away in the face of determined NRA soldiers. In just two days, the NRA had marched to the north of Hunan and seized the provincial capital of Changsha just south of the Yangtze River on July the 11th. On the same day, word reached Chang that the governor of Guizhou province, just to the west of Hunan, had agreed to join the KMT, which was a plus as it meant his western flank was secure, but a negative as it wasn't realistic at this time for the party to try and peacefully wrangle another warlord network into their hierarchy, while also trying to secure the newly conquered areas. This was going to be a reoccurring issue as the KMT was soon to find itself almost a victim of its own successes. As local warlords switched sides, there would not be time to integrate them as reliable components of the NRA and the KMT. There was a short pause in operations as the Kuomintang took possession of Hunan and Cheng traveled north to Changsha with his entourage of Soviet advisors. 
Wu, for his part, clearly saw the danger he was in and scrambled in his more battle-hardened troops from the north. He also had his troops already in the area demolish a series of dikes to create floods to try and slow the NRA troops, which might have stuck in Cheng's head because he was to do the same thing in the same region on a grander scale and, much more infamously, over a decade later. The prospect of a harder battle did not deter the Nationalist Army, though. On August 19th, the NRA was again back on the march. Their objective was the city of Wuhan, both the capital of the Hubei province and also for Wu's personal realm in general. I know I mentioned back in an earlier episode, but just in case you forgot, Wuhan is more of a modern name for it, as the city actually started as a collection of three smaller towns that eventually grew together into one single unit along the Yangtze River. While the three separate towns had distinct histories and names, I'll be referring to them collectively as Wuhan for simplicity's sake. And the fact that it sits on the Yangtze is really important as well, as the area marks the confluence with it and its largest tributary river, the Han. The presence of the waterways is important to keep in mind, as not just is the river huge, the surrounding area is riddled with a maze of lakes and smaller tributary rivers, making an overland advance through there very tricky and dependent on a series of bridges. And it was on those bridges that Wu decided to focus his defenses. He could have just destroyed them, but that would be admitting that he couldn't beat the NRA and would also deny himself their use. In the first instance of a bridge defense, the KMT troops took advantage of that local support I've been mentioning as having been growing in previous episodes. Under the cover of darkness on the night of August 26th, farmers pointed out a shallow section of the local river which allowed the NRA troops to bypass the bridge defenses entirely. This example of sympathetic locals acting as guides, giving shortcuts and pro tips, was going to reoccur throughout the entire campaign. Surrounded, the first line of Wu's defenses surrendered the next day. Wu took personal command and tried to counterattack, but it rapidly became obvious that even his veteran troops were no match for the NRA. He fell back to try and hold another bridge crossing just outside Wuhan, but on August 30th, the NRA directly forced his lines, and his army disintegrated. Wu fled north of the Yangtze and left a garrison in Wuhan to hold the city behind its old walls. Wu himself retreated back north and eventually retired into his final set of bases in the Henan province after September 15th. His troops in Wuhan, however, totally outdid him and forced the NRA into a 40-day siege as the city had to be taken section by section, with the last district only surrendering on October 15th, 1926. To the east, Chang had made efforts to placate the warlord Sun Chuan Feng with assurances that the KMT was only on campaign against Wu and that they had no designs on his holdings. This assurance was taken as exactly what it was, a crummy lie, and both sides started moving troops into the Zhongzhi province. The coming battle was prefaced by the local commander of the southern half of the province going over to the KMT's side without a fight which was going to be a reoccurring issue for anybody trying to fight the NRA, as many of the lesser warlords wanted in on the winning side. On September 19th, a force from Changsha began a rapid march on the city of Nancheng, which was the capital city of Zhongzhi, with three separate attack forces. Initially, the campaign was very successful, and resistance in Zhongzhi melted away, leaving the bulk of the province to the KMT. But on September 21st, Sun Chuan Feng launched counterattacks against each of the separated spearheads, driving them out of Nanchang and setting up brutal reprisals against the civilian population who had thrown in with the nationalists and helped them take the city in the first place. Chang arrived on the scene and assumed personal command of the counter-counterattacks in mid-October, 
but he was held in place outside Nanchang as well. Chang now started sending feelers out to Soon's subordinates to see if any of them were willing to defect over to him. Naturally, they were, because the answer to that question was apparently always yes, regardless of which warlord you were talking to, unless you were in the KMT or CPC. The Soviets also took over planning of the next attack, which consisted of a three-pronged assault on the city from three directions. The attack depended on all three spearheads acting in synchronization, which meant the past two years of professional military training was about to pay off in a big way. This third attempt went much better, as between the end of October and November 8th, thousands of Soon's troops defected over, which caused a domino effect on further resistance. An additional 40,000 troops surrendered, and Nanchang fell once again. Despite the triumph, this was not a pleasant campaign for the NRA, as they suffered nearly 15,000 losses of their own over the course of two months of hard fighting in Yongzhi. While the NRA ranks were continuously expanding, this was almost a quarter of the initial invasion army and some of the more high-quality troops. Even further to the east was the province of Fujian, also under Sun's control, which became a battleground as well. The nationalists there had left behind only a screening force, and Sun's forces outnumbered them heavily enough that here at least maybe an offensive could be launched by Sun Chuanfang. On September 27th, the warlord forces tried to invade Guangdong province, but it became immediately apparent that not only were they outmatched by the KMT forces, they were also hopelessly infiltrated as well. The NRA knew exactly where they would attack, and were even in the process of flipping several local commanders over to the nationalist cause. By mid-October, Soon's troops had only succeeded in losing thousands of prisoners along with their equipment. On October 14th, the first warlord units in Fujian started defecting over to the KMT. From there, the campaign in Fujian became a painstaking grind through the mountainous province, as Soon's forces could only slow the NRA advance. By December 18th, the nationalist troops had entered the capital of Fuzhou. These victories concluded the first phase of the northern expedition, which saw six southern provinces fall into the hands of the nationalist government. The campaign had been hard-fought in several places. The Zhongxi campaign almost turned disastrous, and the advance through the mountains of Fujian was no picnic either. But overall, it had been a resounding success. The troops of the warlords had by and large been ineffective against the National Revolutionary Army. This was due to a number of factors. The most obvious was the additional training the NRA had gone through over the course of two years. They still had a very long way to go to be capable of standing up to a modernized foreign army, but for the purposes of internal campaigns in 1920s China, they just couldn't be beat in a stand-up fight. And once momentum came to be on their side, the various houses of cards that opposed them crumbled. The vast majority of people welcomed the defeat of the warlord armies, whose rank-and-file troops quickly saw the writing on the wall. Wu may have been a leading figure once upon a time, and even considered himself a George Washington analog in his heyday, but everyone could see that whatever window he had during his more successful days back in 1920-1924 had long since closed. He slunk northwards and was forced to come into Zheng Zhuolin's orbit as a confirmed subordinate. Sun Chuan Feng might have been able to draw upon the superior financial resources of the eastern Yangtze River Valley, but that was never going to be enough to make a difference when a real army came knocking. The KMT, on the other hand, was marching not for any one leader, but the idea of a strong China working to the benefit of its people for a change. It was a simple idea, but was exactly what the people were looking to rally behind. And with the success of the Northern Expedition, the people saw that their side was not just winning, but winning big. And everybody loves a winner. 
and unlike the Warlords, the KMT was actually positioned to build something a little more lasting. This does lead me to some problems the KMT was going to face after the initial thrill of success wore off, though. The first is that over the course of the campaigns, you might have noticed that there were an awful lot of defections from Wu and Soon. These commanders were absorbed wholesale into the NRA, and they did not magically become professional or reliable troops. Where the core of the NRA was trained and politically educated, these new commanders only knew the methods of the warlords. Now, undoubtedly, these formations had been exposed to KMT propaganda and had their share of infiltrators and sympathizers to help get them into the desired mindset. So it wasn't like they were clueless as to what kind of group they were defecting to or what was probably going to be expected of them. That and they were put under a much more official military organization. Also, they weren't going to rely as much on local power bases to provide for their upkeep. That would at least in theory be handled by an actual government. But even still, they were not up to the same standards as the core NRA forces, and would not be nearly as reliable. Plus, the defecting officers looked more towards Chiang Kai-shek for leadership, given that, strictly speaking, they threw in with him and probably felt it was preferable to continue answering to a military authority. This would be an issue pretty soon down the road, as one of the nationalist selling points was to rein in the military's role in everyday life and shift over to a civilian government. In fact, most of the defecting warlords would manage to keep their positions of power, which was an early source of disillusionment for the idealists in the KMT. In some cases, these problems extended to entire provinces. I'll point out that the provinces of Sichuan and Guizhou to the west were not actually conquered. The local authorities cut deals with the KMT to bring them under their authority, but were able to maintain a lot of their autonomy. This wasn't as bad as the traditional networks of warlords as the KMT as a party did start extending offices into those areas and gradually rejuvenating government services in those places. But it was far, far from perfect, though, and those regions for long periods were effectively out of reach to the KMT leadership. The success of the campaign also opened up all those old fissures that had threatened the nationalists since the death of Sun Yat-sen. Both spectrums of the KMT were swift to move into the vacuum that the retreat of the warlords had opened up. With the local military forces and militias previously keeping order being co-opted into the NRA, there was nothing stopping a fresh wave of farmer and labor organization. The left KMT and the communists went into overdrive, setting up farmer associations and encouraging strikes in the cities, similar to what had already been going on in the South. The right wing of the party were not idle either, and focused on negotiating better conditions for these now openly organized laborers with the business classes and landed gentry. These included attempts at transferring some land to farmers, rent reductions, and pay increases. Anything to try and make them happy to get them distanced from the leftist factions. One thing that both ends of the party were in agreement on was a desire to stick it to the greedy foreigners. This was music to the Soviets' ears, as it meant the KMT would be pushed further still towards them. But they had to be smart about picking enemies. Japan was probably the most hated but the Soviets were anxious about picking a fight with them that could be traced back to Moscow. Then there were the British and French, who both had Chinese blood in their hands after the May 30th incident and the Shaki massacre. In the interest of keeping their enemies list manageable, the KMT opted to direct the fury of the people on the British. This option was taken because the British were the foreigners with the most extensive investments and operations in the country. Very soon, their inland concession within Wuhan would be coming under attack from the emboldened populace, who had grown tired of them and were backed now by a supportive government. 
This was also handy as the Soviets were intractably hostile to the British Empire at this point in the 20s, so it was a win-win for everybody. Except that for a growing segment of the nationalist government, the strikes and boycotts started in the wake of the May 30th incident were becoming something of an economic issue. Guangzhou was suffering greatly, as shunning British commerce had created a gap in local trade that had not been filled. Money wasn't coming in, and people needed work. Business activity declined so much that native Chinese banks were going under left and right. So, the KMT took a schizophrenic course and let the left wing demonize the British, while the right quietly came to the table with them to begin negotiating. The British, for their part, really didn't care about being demonized all that much, as Chinese opinion didn't matter to them, and they simply wanted to make sure all their businesses weren't smashed up. Also, after Chiang's successes on his march northward, they were really hoping that a stable government was on its way to being established. One that might see reason and take on responsibility for those loans that previous governments had taken out. Gradually, pressure was made for the southern strikes to come to an end, and soon enough, western business was again flowing through Guangzhou. But up north in Wuhan, there was an entirely different story. Baroden and the communists were agitating against the British and stirring up as much ill will as they could, which turned out to be a lot. Always remember, the appeal of the promised KMT revolution rested not just on getting rid of the warlords, but the Western imperialists as well. A huge anti-British rally was held on December 26th by the communists, and violence hung in the air of Wuhan. Soon enough, the authorities in the British concession got jumpy and ordered their entire enclave sealed. At the beginning of January 1927, barricades were erected and manned by concession police and marine soldiers. They were unnerved by crowds in the streets celebrating the KMT government transferring operations there, crowds that were hostile to the foreign presence. The local populace started hurling stones at the barricades on January 3, 1927, and the troopers responded by fixing bayonets. There was some scuffling and injuries, but no deaths. At this point, the concession authorities were desperate to avoid a repetition of the Shaki massacre. At the beginning of January, the Marines were sent back to their gunboats and transports, while security was taken over exclusively by Chinese police. This allowed the situation to get out of hand for the foreigners, as now the barricades were unmanned and the populace started pouring into the concession. The Chinese police did nothing, as they were not about to fire on their own people and invite themselves to be massacred on behalf of their Western masters. The British were forced to agree to turn over the concession to the KMT, and most of them were evacuated downriver to Shanghai. This wasn't, strictly speaking, a KMT operation, as while the left bloc certainly had riled up the crowds, retaking the concession wasn't an official objective by the party. But oh boy, did they bask in that moment of glory anyway. For the first time, a piece of China had been reclaimed from the previously unbeatable foreigners. The fact that it was a town district was beside the point. The first step had been taken and a major message sent. But this also highlighted how much more active the leftist part of the KMT was starting to get. And this was felt still more as the KMT government started becoming split geographically as well. Most of the highest political offices were held by the leftist faction led by Wang Jingwei, who was allowed to return to China and leadership in the party. They started moving northwards from Guangzhou to Wuhan in December 1926. Baroden set himself up among them as well. Chiang Kai-shek and the more rightward elements started congregating at the NRA's headquarters in Nanjing, where Chiang was preparing for his future attack on Nanjing and Shanghai. With the left KMT set up in Wuhan, he wanted the right KMT to counter with setting up shop in the even more prestigious southern capital. 
Plus, Shanghai's financial resources would give him the edge in any future conflict. General Blucher, Broden, and the leftists, though, were dead set on directing Cheng away from Shanghai. By then, they saw him as a potential Bonaparte, which is to say a military figure who'd concentrate power in his own hands through military force. If Cheng turned east, he would lap up the rest of the wealthy Yangtze River Valley, securing for himself most of China's admittedly modest industrial assets. Which is a weird thing to say, modest Chinese industrial assets. Uh, their preference would be for Cheng to strike out north through the Henan province towards Beijing. This had the benefit for the leftists of securing the capital and forcing a situation where a formal national government would have to be settled. And with Fang Yuzhang's Guomjun still active on the western and northern periphery adjacent to Beijing, and still being supported by the Soviets and apparently still sympathetic to the nationalists, they might have had an additional hedge against Cheng taking over for himself. Initially, both factions tried to smooth things over and come to an understanding with each other going into 1927. Then, on January 11th, an especially bad group dinner dashed all hopes of an understanding. Cheng was visiting Wuhan to try and allay the concerns of the leftists. But over a joint dinner, Barodin started making pointed and obvious allusions to the troublesome nature of power-hungry dictators. This really, really pissed Chang off, and Barodin couldn't fail to grasp that he might have burned a bridge that evening. The Soviets now figured they had to make a move, or Chang would turn against them. They reached out to Li Zongren, leader of the new Guangxi clique, and now a prominent KMT commander. They inquired to see if he would be willing to replace Chang. Why they reached out to Li specifically, I really have no idea. He was pretty well-known, and so they couldn't have missed the fact that he hated the communists. He also hated Chang, but he hated the communists more. Li immediately got in touch with Chang and informed him the Soviets were looking to purge him. The cynical part of me is sure that Chang would have started consolidating power around himself without the prospect of removal, but clumsy plots like this can create the excuse that he really didn't have a choice. The political stalemate lasted through February, when at the end of the month, the KMT Central Executive Committee confirmed Chang's military leadership, but also that he was once again subordinate to them. The broad personal power and independence he had been granted on the launch of the Northern Expedition was removed. Wang Jingwei, already en route from his exile, was formally welcomed back to take a leading political position again. Effectively, it was an effort to both isolate Cheng and restore power to the actual party apparatus. That and deepen ties with the CPC, who per the left KMT would no longer be restricted in their activities within the Kuomintang. Cheng's supporters responded by asking for Barodin to be recalled back to the Soviet Union, not an unsensible request for them, as Barodin had his hand in pretty much everything going on in Wuhan. This request was ignored entirely and pretty much confirmed to everyone that the breach in the party was fully out in the open. This probably created an awkward working environment as Blucher and the other, specifically military, Soviet advisors were in Nanchang, aiding Chang's next attacks. And the situation was only growing more complicated. Sun Chuan Feng, knowing full well that Chang wanted to strike out to the very core of his remaining territories, appealed to Zheng Zhoulin and the Feng Tian clique for assistance. Zhang had been in some back-channel talks with Chang, but seeing this potential connection correctly as a ploy by the KMT to isolate him, he resolved to support Soon instead. Or at very least find an excuse to march an army into Soon's territory. 
Chiang, for his part, was being largely cut off from the Wuhan government and was forced to rely on forces immediately available to him in Zhongzhi to carry out the eastern offensive. With no funds from the rest of the KMT coming in, he ironically reached out to every source in Shanghai for money, despite it being the target of his conquest. He collected funds from sympathetic bankers, industrialists, and every criminal group he had contacts with from his earlier days operating in the underworld. Due to the international nature of Shanghai's governance, it wasn't an issue getting money from there over to him, and it would prove to be enough to allow him to launch his offensive using his own resources. Back on the front lines, his advance eastwards hadn't so much stopped as slowed down during the winter months of 1926-27. Despite the break within the party's leadership, every available element in the area on the ground, right, left, or communist, was committed to opening the way for the NRA forces as they would make the final march eastward to the coast. The Fangtian, for their part, took over command of the city as, once again, Soon's own forces were disintegrating. Between February 19th and 24th, the communists launched an uprising in Shanghai that shut the city down economically. And no, the communists weren't terribly interested in helping Chiang, they just wanted to make sure they were in as strong a position as possible once he took the city. They figured it was going to fall anyway, might as well get themselves established by the time Chiang arrived. Events only accelerated from there. In March, the province of Anhui defected over to Chiang. By March 18th, Zhang's troops were hopelessly broken and they fled into Shanghai. On March 21st, there was another popular uprising in the city organized by cadets from the Wampoa Academy. On the 22nd, the NRA arrived and actually occupied Shanghai. Nanjing fell even more quickly on the 24th, and the nationalists in a frenzy ransacked the foreign consulates there for whatever they could find. A half-dozen foreigners died in the chaos. British and American ships on the Yangtze River responded by shelling the city in order to cover their own evacuations. This created a panic back in Shanghai, where the foreign concessions had already established manned barricades to protect their sectors of the city. Whereas before, with the more isolated trade stations, further in the Chinese interior, the British were inclined to look the other way when their interests were attacked, this was far more serious and impacted all the other foreign powers. They started issuing barely veiled threats, forcing the Cheng to take a more active hand in controlling his troops. Oddly enough, it would be the Japanese government that ran interference for Cheng in this instance, urging the other powers to keep calm and resist getting involved. This was still during the period of dovish Japanese foreign policy in the mid to late 20s, and they saw Cheng as a potential partner, a sentiment that Cheng was encouraging during his period of estrangement from one half of his own party. The Japanese felt they were losing control of Zhang Zhou-lin, and Chang might be able to put the old warlord in his place and confine him to Manchuria. While he probably wouldn't have minded testing the waters against the foreigners, Chang had no time to get wrapped up in further international incidents. At this point, the entire southern core of China was in the hands of the nationalists, but Chang had defied the wishes of the party apparatus in Wuhan in his drive on the east. Moreover, the ease of his victory had been due again in no small part to the advance agitators that brought the public immediately over to the KMT's side. Now, these same cadres started working to organize the citizens of Shanghai into supporters of the left wing of the KMT. Because the city was the most industrialized in China, this was actually a location where the communists were able to help organize an industrial proletariat. 
These groups set about forcing increased workers' rights and disengagement with the imperialist powers. This in turn caused the city leaders to turn to Chang and to restore order, or more accurately, restore their order. And as Chang was already strongly at odds with the party's left wing and CPC both, there really wasn't a reason for him to not take the opportunity to assert his own authority, which was exactly what he planned to do. Next week, the KMT's internal drama escalates as the two factions in the party look to settle their scores once and for all. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.